BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here, and it's bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Yes, indeed, as we speak, it is. Hold on, let me get the newspaper. I always forget the dates. Proof of life. Tuesday, August 20th, and you'll be listening to this anytime in the universe because it's a downloadable podcast. And uh, so, as always, with my guests, I ask my guests to introduce themselves any which way they want. I'm going to start with guest A, and then I'm going to look at guest B, and each will do the honor. So starting with guest A. Hello, I'm guest A, a.k.a. Joanna Klonsky, regular on the Ben Jarofsky Show and communications and political strategist in Chicago. This feels a little bit like the dating game. I am guest B. Uh, I'm Meredith Shiner. I'm a former national political reporter for Politico, Roll Call, and Yahoo News. Uh, I lived in D.C. for almost a decade, but I grew up in Chicago. I moved back here three years ago, and around these parts, I think I'm mostly just known as a friend of Joanna. Yeah. I so I'm, I'm here by transitive property, but it's great to be on the show. All right, very good. And uh, some of our guests actually recite poems or songs or, or rap lyrics. Do you have any that you want to recite, either one of you? I feel like it's too soon in the show to embarrass myself, <laughs> but maybe at the end. Yeah. When did this become a thing? This has been going on. Uh, Troy LaRavier started this. He was a guest, and I just said, do a mic check and introduce yourself. And the guy started, I, went, who, I don't even remember who he started quoting, but it was unbelievable. He took the song. What's the name of that rap group? Help me out, Meredith. I need a, you know. <laughs> I mean, which one? That's there such a generic. It's great at narrowing the field. Who is it? Yeah, you oh, know that on, one. Man. Tribe Call Quest. Oh, okay. He did a whole Tribe Call Quest. Uh, I'm so, so proud of you right now, Ben. You remembered that. You asked know. me before we started recording what my limits were, and I think not <laughs> rapping is the first thing I do on the show is probably a pretty good start. <laughs> All right, there's no... Mick Dumkey quoted a poem at one point, uh, but anyway, uh, those are uh, tough standards to hold by. All right, uh, everybody knows when Joanna Klonsky comes on the show, we do something called Creep Report. We've been doing Creep Reports for a long time. I uh, can't remember the a first... too cre- long. The, was, yeah, the material never runs out, does it? it does was it Harvey Weinstein? Was that the first creep report? It must have been. All I know is that I used to be allowed to have a walk-up song, yeah. Creep by TLC, which yeah. has now been deep six <laughs> because really of yeah. copyright yeah. issues. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone go look up TLC Creep and think about it to yourself since now, we can't play well, here we go. Before we take the deep dive into mm-hmm. the Creep report that I really want to talk about uh, with you two, uh, Joanna, that first Creep report, Harvey Weinstein, or maybe it wasn't Harvey Weinstein, but that was the first one. But hey, we did Harvey Weinstein. We talked about Quentin Tarantino's yeah. uh, liability in this, and I have a confession to make. I You saw his new movie, didn't oh, you? Twice. Love <laughs> Beyond. Come on, bud. Wait, hold on. Here's the tattoo. Don't give that uh, shitbag your money. Um, well, that, that, that just, uh, by the way, you oh, are allowed to Oh, I broke the swear. cursing seal on that episode. <laughs> a minute yeah. in. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> a minute in. Uh, so you, I assume you have not seen the movie? No, I haven't seen okay. the movie. I'm, I was never a big Tarantino person, to be honest with you. Meredith, uh, I know you're going to disagree with her vehemently on this point, correct? I have not seen the movie. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. But do you have a principled opposition to Quentin Tarantino? I'm agnostic. I don't know that I have a principled opposition, but I'm not really into his stuff. So, okay. All right. I, the, Here's the thing, and 
I've talked about this a lot the past, I don't know, three years. There are so many things to have principled stands against that, and there's only like a limited amount of energy that you can spend like raging against the various <laughs> machines yeah. that I find myself having to prioritize them. And so yeah, this it's one's not like a not principled a pri- stand. Yeah. I just is- don't really feel like going out of my way to see that movie. All right. Well, anybody else who's listening out there, run, don't walk, go see it. Okay. <laughs> enough on that. Uh, Ben's uh, like, I'm going to take a pro Tarantino <laughs> principled stand. Everyone's the, that, that sponsorship ain't nothing. Never coming through, <laughs> but it's a nice hustle. Yo, QT, you want to sponsor the show? All right, uh, Joanna, at the top of our list is a gentleman by the name of Mark Halpern. Oh, man. And uh, I don't care which one of you starts by explaining who he is and why he is on the creep. We'll start with you, Meredith. Get your. Uh, oh, yeah. Ben you Jarofsky can see it. Your listeners can see it. Okay, so let's start here. Uh, In D.C., as someone who lived there for quite some time and was part of, although I think culturally allergic to the political apparatus and machinery there, there are certain people who rise to the top because they become known for their connections and their takes. And Mark Halpern is one of those people. So if any of your listeners are familiar with Politico or the Politico playbook, the idea of a morning political tip sheet really started with Mark Halpern. Uh, And then he went on to write books like Game Change. He made a boatload of money from places like Bloomberg News that gave him a million dollars a year to pontificate with one of his partners. He had um, a contract with HBO. And about a year and a half ago, two years ago, he lost all of those things because it turned out that he was a monster, um, that he ruined young female journalists' careers because when he was at ABC News, which is where he started, he did everything from um, unwanted touching and unwanted kissing to putting his erect penis on young women um, and basically said that if they didn't reciprocate his advances, that they would never have careers. Um, And so when all of this came out, he lost his book deal for Game Change 3. He lost the HBO contract, but he still has friends in really powerful places. So Mika and Joe of Morning Joe fame have really um, been aggressive in trying to initiate his rehabilitation tour. And then over the weekend, we learned that he has a new book deal, um, which I guess in and of itself is not surprising because, you know, these people tend to circulate and resurface again. But the thing that is surprising and the thing that is really disappointing is that 75 Democratic strategists spoke to him for this book. The premise of the book is how to beat Trump in 2020, which I mean, what we want to talk about right now is that someone who was a predator and who ruined women's lives shouldn't get the second chance. But ancillary to that, the people that he talked to lost in 2016 in the first place, so shouldn't be given this platform to respond to his emails to say what we should do in 2020. I have issues with the premise of the book, Joanna Klonsky. Uh, just what Meredith said, we'll get into the, uh, the life of Mark Halpern. But why would we turn as Democrats to the people who lost in 2016 for advice uh, and try to defeat the man that defeated us in 2016? Please explain that to me. I think this is it's like Meredith said, they're in a bubble where they just talk to each other and they don't realize that there are countless Democratic strategists all over the country who are actually engaging with the population, the electorate Mm -hmm. uh, around the country in ways that could have potentially gained us a lot of ground in 2016 and could in 2020. They just all talk to one another, I think, in a Mm -hmm. way that is self-defeating, self-fulfilling. And it also is, I think, that culture, that bubble is part of why we've ended up in this situation where, well, of course we'll talk to Mark Halperin. 
nothing that he actually did, his putting his erect penis on women and threatening their future careers isn't disqualifying because he is one of us. He's part of the club. No, nothing any of us do is disqualifying. Yeah, and I think that this is one of the bit, this has been like, if you're in Washington DC, one of the challenges of the Trump era, among the real challenges that real people actually face as a consequence of his administration, I think there was always sort of this unwritten game in DC that it was being part of the institution, being an insider first, more than anything else. Like the idea that the Mary Matlin, James Carville marriage was sort of glorified, right? It's about, Access And so what you saw from these 75 Democratic strategists, everyone from David Axelrod, who is famous in Chicago and obviously pretty prominent nationally, to Anita Dunn, who's working on Joe Biden's campaign currently, they've known him. And I mean, I think Axelrod even said this. I knew him for 25 years. I didn't really think about it when I was responding. And I guess now that I've seen that it's been used, I regret it. Right. That was such an interesting. Sorry. That was such an interesting um, note that he chose to include it. You know, David Axelrod is no dummy. He didn't. He didn't choose his words. Um, with I'm sure he was thoughtful about what he decided to say, and he felt that it was important to note that he had known him for 25 years, as though that should make us all go, oh, well, if you've known him for 25 years, then it's fine for you to look the other way on the fact that he's sexually assaulted multiple women and threatened their future careers, and sidelined people. Because you guys are our buddies, your friends. Well, of course, that's the way Washington works. That's the way politics works. It's okay now. And it's not okay. Because they put like showing up at the book party or being named in the index before having a principled position. And to me, it was more hurtful to see women, women of color, women who I knew in D.C. and actually had respected basically say, well, you know, I know that he did all of these things, but I wanted to make sure that like my perspective was included. And the thing that is so divorced from reality of that perspective is that Someone like Mark Halperin and his existence and the way that he interacted and behaved kept women from being part of political journalism and part of being better at conveying those perspectives. And why should we trust someone who held women in such disregard to actually convey a a female perspective or the perspective of a woman of color. And the idea that this was somehow going to solve the Democrats' problem for Trump, unless this book is going to like convince Mitch McConnell that the formula for preclearance and the Voting Rights Act should be fixed to protect voters in this country, nothing about this book is actually going to keep Trump from running again. Uh, Now, just explain a little bit what you meant, Meredith, by the role Halpern played in, in the sort of suppressing the advancement of women in journalism. So this is something that I've written about publicly, um, so I'm not shy about talking about it, which is that the culture in politics or in media or in so many other industries that your listeners might be involved in is to not value women. There's There's a corrosive culture of you know, verbal demeaning, right? Like when we think about the Me Too movement, right? You think about all of these celebrities who are telling their stories and and sometimes it involves physical harassment, sometimes it doesn't. But I think being a woman in 2019 is recognizing that you have a place in this conversation because you've faced a s- systemic obstacles in your career that have discouraged you and challenged you from continuing to pursue those careers. So for example, when I was a reporter, right? you're constantly facing challenges from other directions, right? You have sources who maybe don't want you reporting a story and you have editors who are part of groupthink who might not think the story that you wanna pursue is actually an angle worth telling. And when you layer on this challenge of the misogyny that has 
pervaded um, industries that have been dominated by white men for a really long time, it adds on to those challenges. So if you're a 22, 23-year-old woman who decides you want to be in political journalism, first of all, there aren't a lot of people who are senior to you, who look like you, who can mentor you. And when there are women in those positions, because they've faced all of this misogyny, they oftentimes don't reach back because they view everyone as competition. So everything about that sort of environment and atmosphere is toxic. And so when you have someone who's as aggressively toxic as Mark Halperin, but as powerful as he is, right, the process of reporting this book was just him flexing his Rolodex, right? Saying, I can send an email to 150 people who are well known within this industry and I can get them to respond, right? This book might not sell, but what he's trying to sell to some news organization is that he still has the connections and he's not such a pariah that people won't talk to him. Mm-hmm. And so it's sending this signal that that young women, particularly in the field of political journalism, don't matter. And what we know about political journalism is what Joanna was intimating, which is that it would be better, not just like politics and strategists would be better if we had a more diverse class of strategists, right? But our political journalism would be better if we had more people of color, if we didn't have, you know, the the Politico column that ran a few weeks ago um, where you had a few reporters from the Washington Post and New York Times who are like the one reporter of color on the politics desk talking about how hard it is to be an arbiter of what is racism in a newsroom, right? In 2019, that shouldn't be a struggle. We should have diverse newsrooms that reflect reflect this country, but it's an industry that doesn't have financial resources to sustain itself. And so you see all of these systemic challenges amplified. And when you throw Mark Halpern into the mix, when you continue to empower him, I think it's a step backwards towards making the progress that we need to hold all of um, government entities and politicians accountable with a press corps that works, that is built for this moment and um, can sort of combat all of the bad things that are happening. There's one other thing about this that's been weighing on me, which is that, you know, the hell, I went and looked up the original report about the women, the five women who came forward in the first place against Mark, about Mark Halperin with accusations. That was October 2017. It was like pretty soon after the Harvey Weinstein stuff. And we were kind of in this wave, this, this catalytic moment where all of these victims and survivors were coming forward. And now it's been a couple years and the waves died down and People aren't stepping up and coming forward every single day. We're not constantly top of mind talking about the Me Too movement in the same way that we were when I first started doing the Creep Report. And I think that people really feel like, all right, enough time's gone by. It's safe for me to kind of come out of my little hiatus that I was on. A lot of these bad guys are coming back. Um, And a lot of the people around him, a lot of the enablers, a lot of the adjacent, you know, predator adjacent folks, who were adjacent all along, are now feeling more comfortable. Like, all right, I'll call Halpern back and comment for his little book. Like, that's cute, I'll do it. Who's really, who's really gonna say anything? And even having to like give a half-assed apology on Twitter or whatever, it's still a flex in a weird yeah. way where you're like, well, I'm just, I'm so important that I didn't even think about this because it's beneath me to have thought about it. And, now that I did, I, you know, I'm so sorry. I really regret it. Like, you know, that's the that's the thing that worries me, and I think we're going to see more of that now that the spotlight is off, um, and we just have to be vigilant. I I think I'm thinking about it today in terms of Springfield too. 
you know, and I know we'll get into we'll that get later. We'll get into that, yeah. All right, uh, I, and just help out our listeners a little bit. Um, I can't remember this, so I'm just utter ignorance when I ask this mm-hmm. question, Meredith. Did Mark Halpern ever have a moment of confession, like no. the equivalent of going on the Oprah show no. and bearing his soul. No, uh, he sent, he literally sent like Joe Scarborough and Mika Pruszynski like to talk to like political playbook or some sort of like equivalent to basically say like, oh, he's kind of repentant. Like, I don't think that there was ever a moment. <laughs> I mean, he sent like, emissaries out Yeah, so, it. and he, his the, his first return was to be on the Smirkana show. So he has a few friends in media who are advocating for him. But we've seen in the past few days, the women who came forward Forward, have confirmed that he hasn't apologized to them directly. Um, and I don't know that he has any attention to, but like it's all of those people around him who are enabling him. And the thing is, is like Mark Halperin, I don't believe that Mark Halperin shouldn't be able to live his life, right? But he had a position of privilege, like to be able to set the political narrative in the way that he did to have multi-million dollar deals, um, whether it was with a company like Bloomberg or HBO or a publisher, like you aren't entitled to get that life back. You'll appreciate this because you're wearing a bulls hat right now and I've dressed for the occasion in my Tim Anderson shirt. I have this conversation a lot uh, with Cubs fans about Addison Russell, right? Addison Russell isn't entitled to be a Major League Baseball player. He's no again. longer a Major League Baseball player, but that's right. a minor yeah, yeah, yeah. point. Yeah. But, but he, if he were good, <laughs> if he were better at baseball, he would be. Um, <laughs> you know, and we, we've had these conversations yeah. with athletes across the board um, when they are found guilty of incidents of domestic violence, right? Yeah. Uh, the Cubs were willing to look the other way on Araldus Chapman when they thought he was the final piece of a World Series puzzle. So the question is, when you have a position of privilege, are you entitled to that like if mark halperin wants to pursue a different career like his life doesn't have to be over but you're not entitled to be restored to this like prominent place and i think that's the difference too and i know margaret sullivan at uh the washington post had a column about this right and he's not entitled to the position that he had previously particularly when he has no interest in actually apologizing accepting or acknowledging what he did wrong well he i i pulled it up he issued a he did issue a statement at the time. The statement has some of the classic behaviors of an apology that's not an apology. For example, um, I fully acknowledge and apologize for conduct that was often aggressive and crude. This man sexually assaulted multiple women. He aggressive put his erect crude, penis on a woman. Aggressive <laughs> and crude is like, a, sorry, I was just being a dude and a bro. I get kind of carried locker away Locker room sometimes. talk, if you will. Yeah, that's like yeah. a locker room talk kind of comment. That's well, not an apology. All right. Well, this gets when your locker room talk uh, is a uh, reference to what uh, Donald Trump, his defense of his uh, comments on the Hollywood access tape, mm-hmm. and uh, which I just allu- I alluded to earlier in the show. And I'll tell you what, why I alluded to it, uh, Meredith, when I was in Michigan vacationing on a well-deserved vacation. Thank you for saying that. Uh, <laughs> you I, earned it, Ben. I, thank you. Uh, you didn't even have to say that. Uh, I saw a gentleman <clears throat> wearing the following T-shirt. I'm doing this off of memory. Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Trump 2020 uh, will grab him by the pussies again. Mm. Okay, so the dude was wearing the shirt out and open. He wasn't holding back, you know what I mean? He was just like letting it fly on northern Michigan and in a swing state. Now, when Trump got caught saying that, he said it was dismissed as locker room talk. And then he immediately dragged, uh, he brought out the women that had accused Bill Clinton of abusing them. All right, pointing out the inconsistency and the hypocrisy and the 
of the Democratic Party that will denounce uh, acts of violence against women when it's Republicans, but will support Democrats of the same. I have an issue with this. I don't even know Mark Halpern. I've never mm-hmm. met Mark Halpern. I've never read a book by Mark Halpern. I don't, I'm not even sure I read a column by Mark You didn't Halpern. read Game Change? No, I did not read Game Change. I'm not quite sure I know what Game Change is. I know you alluded Good. to it. Good. Uh, <laughs> I, d- I didn't read it either on principle. I also never read, read this, it. Jen. Uh, yeah. So here's the question. Yes. Why would anybody think that would be a good idea for the Democratic Party, when going up against Donald Trump and addressing the issue of defeating Donald Trump in 2020, he is most vulnerable, I would say, it's in the top three with his attitude toward women. Would you ask Mark Halpern to write a book about defeating Donald Trump? It just seems to me that Democrats never learn. They don't learn from history. I talked earlier about why would you take advice from the Hillary Clinton people to to try to beat Donald Trump when she couldn't do it? Why would you turn to Mark Halpern for advice on beating a guy who's a misogynist? And and why would you turn to the people who think it's okay to turn to Mark Halpern for advice? Correct. So, And and that's the thing that's so frustrating, right? Like, what what was the upside for any of these Democrats to participate? It's that it's so ingrained in the, like, D.C. culture to participate that they felt like this was somehow productive and they couldn't take a step back and see how damaging it was to enable someone like that and how it's counter to their values. And when I had alluded earlier to um, a piece that I had published um, last fall for Think Progress, the whole premise was that I think Democratic operatives think that because they publicly support pro-women policies, it gives them cover to behave badly towards women behind the scenes, right? Like misogyny still exists on Democratic campaigns, whether it's the most progressive campaigns or the most establishment campaigns. And I think that um, there are people who are involved in the political apparatus who take comfort in their outward positions, but then don't actually act in accordance to those positions when push comes to shove. And I think participating with Mark Halperin is a great example of that. Mm. Every person who participated should have thought twice because they all knew who he was, right? He was in their Rolodex. He was a very like prominent person in the this town culture of D- DC. They knew what they were doing, but they didn't actually care about the underlying principles because again, they were willing to put being mentioned in an index or being invited to the book party above what they stood for. Yeah. And that's the thing that makes me the angry. I also think I've said this on this creep report edition of your show, probably every episode I've ever been on, but there's something fundamentally that I think all of these folks have missed. And I think a lot of folks in Springfield have missed, which is that if you, if it's not enough for you to think that this kind of behavior is inappropriate, immoral, despicable, just on its face, if you're, if it's not enough for you to have empathy for the women around you, or even for, in some cases, for yourself, um, to try to to want to stand up and and end this culture, then let's talk about it from a pragmatic standpoint. It's also horrible politics. It's also mm-hmm. a, a loser for us. This is the Democratic Party is supposed to be the party that stands with the people who are vulnerable and with women, we're supposed to be the party of women that's standing up to the Republicans who are waging a war on women. And so every time they do stuff like this and every time a story like this materializes out of uh, our side of the fence here and a Democratic political operative or a Democratic Party you know, campaign, 
um, creates an environment that's hostile to women, it chips away at our whole fundamental argument. It's bad politics. We lose like that. And I don't know how folks like Donna Brazile and David Axelrod could miss that Flashing neon. Well, oh my God, Donald Donna Brazil's statement. I actually cackled. It was so bad. I don't she think I said, saw it. "Oh, you should look it up right now." Talk about Donna Brazil, consultant, longtime consultant, Democratic Party, and work oh, I have for it. When, when she was Go asked ahead. by a media reporter yeah, where she I, participated, she said, "Why don't you ask Mark Halpern why he chose us?" Like it was some sort of moment or higher calling to talk to Mark Halperin. Like you chose to participate. You chose to respond to the email or to talk to him. Like this was something you had agency over yeah. and this idea that like, why don't you talk the, to the person who chose me? Like that was well, wild. And, and, and Joanna, I was really- yeah. Ask Mark, she said. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Helpful. I, I These really, are communications yeah. professionals, professionals who this are extremely for a living. Yeah, and they're just showing and not telling us how bad they are at their jobs. All right. So let's go back to what Joanna was saying, because mm-hmm. I really want to pick up on this. This is really I feel this is really important because Democrats since 2016 have said that they that their number one on their agenda is to defeat Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And they they say that, but they they they're clueless in so many ways. And so just let's deal with this. You said something that was very good. I took a notes on it, uh, Meredith. You said counter to their values, mm-hmm. all right? I, their stated values. Yeah, their stated values. Who knows values. what they feel on the inside? Let's, let's put aside their stated values mm-hmm. for a moment because I can't look into somebody's heart and see what's in their values. I can only see their behavior, all right? So counter- you're not a Republican senator who appears on Meet the Press because that's usually their cant line. What's that? I know his heart. Okay, or yeah, I, don't, his I heart. can't know his heart. I'm just the opposite. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's a heart. I just look at the, how they behave. Counter to winning, mm-hmm. when you agree... When you just give a book contract to a, a, a dude who's got, what is it, five women have come forward with this it, yeah. specific accusations against him. When you give him a book contract, how to defeat Trump. So you effectively allow him to sort of be the mouthpiece for the Democratic Party because it's a, the theme of the book. Yeah, well, I mean, the publisher made the decision to support the book. It was the Democrats who then participated. Right, but right? think about the yeah, book. Yeah. But just as a winning st- it just, it's like Joanna says, there is no credibility. And so this is why it's so hard to get traction on an issue, let's say, when Donald Trump says, I grabbed him by the pussy, all right? Mm-hmm. Because, well, the Democrats do it too. The Democrats are playing along with Mark Halpern. The book company gave Mark Halpern a book contract. The top, the greatest Democratic consultants, greatest in quotes, in the country have signed on to it. Mm-hmm. The talk show hosts uh, are endorsing Mark Halperin. They like Mark Halperin. There's no credibility whatsoever. You've totally undercut and destroyed whatever credibility you have to speak on this issue. And I can guarantee you the Tea Party will be sending out emails saying sleazy sure. writer is a, writing a book about how to beat Donald Trump. Look. I am personally really affected by this story because I have such a strong belief that young women who want to be journalists or young women who want to be in politics should get that opportunity and they should bring their smarts to our national conversation. But setting those emotions aside, all of these thinky books or pieces, it's actually just rearranging chairs on the Titanic because it doesn't really matter what any of these communicators think about beating Donald Trump when honestly the Democratic Party is at least 10 years, maybe more behind on actually having the structural like 
the electoral infrastructure to win an election because at this point like right now we don't have preclearance because so we don't have department of justice oversight over jurisdictions that have a, a history of discriminating against voters um the Mueller, the part of the Mueller report that was the least covered or discussed was just the systemic turning away of voters in the state up north of us in Wisconsin. I mean, you had polling places that were shut down by Republicans and they put in emails that they were shutting down those polling places because they were heavily trafficked by Democrats, either college students or people of color. So across the country, we have an electoral system, not even getting into a philosophical debate over the electoral college that is fundamentally broken, that is discriminating against voters, it is oppressing voters, it is suppressing voters, and it doesn't really matter what Donna Brazil says to Mark because you could have a Democrat that could ostensibly win by like 10 million votes, but either those votes never get casted or they don't get counted. So like if we want to have a fight over what will actually win in 2020, I think it's entirely possible that any of the candidates in the field right now could win in 2020, but we're not having an honest conversation about the integrity of our elections. Mitch McConnell is never going to bring the already passed the House election security bill to the floor because he'd rather have the integrity of the Republic challenged as long as a Republican wins than to actually do the right thing. So yes, am I annoyed that Mark Halperin got this position of power? Am I annoyed that Democrats enabled him to do it because it was counter to their stated values? Of course I am. But like the substance of the book doesn't matter. Whether or not Donald Trump is a misogynist or whether Democrats live up to their values as the anti-misogynist party doesn't really matter. Like what matters is right now we don't have a system that we can trust to actually put forward a candidate. So I totally get what your question was. <laughs> I, I buy, I sort of buy into the premise, but at the same time, it, yeah. it all sort of feels like, I don't mean to like bring the like nihilistic, like candied view to the table, yeah. but it, it, it doesn't matter to that part. It matters as a course of principle and a matter of principle. Yeah, wow, that was a great riff, by the way. And do you have anything to add to that riff, Joanna? No, I think Meredith nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have anything else to add. That's why I brought Meredith. Yeah. <laughs> From now on, Meredith, Meredith is my gonna, spokesperson. Yeah, Thank you. Gonna, that was a great riff. And it, I know we're supposed to be doing a creep report, mm -hmm. which is um, we will do the creep report. But you you gave so much food for thought. We have we and I have so many guests who talk about the different things that you just went through mm -hmm. about how the Democrats can win. And the Electoral College is always at the top of the list. I I do not. I'm just going to take this moment since you mentioned it. OK. And get your thoughts on this. I do not. I am still mad at the Democrats, my beloved Democratic Party. I've been a Democrat my whole life that they didn't immediately after 2000 when you were still in grammar school. <laughs> fight to change electoral You would college. be proud that in my eighth grade civics class, I would fight the one Republican kid every day. That was your eighth grade? Yeah. Uh, when you were in eighth grade, or seventh grade. Seventh grade. Seventh grade, when, come on, give me credit on the math. Yeah. I did it really fast. You were in seventh grade. Well, I have a kid your age, roughly. All right, you were in seventh grade when uh, Gore lost to Bush, when the, the mm -hmm. Supreme Court stole that election from Albert Gore. The Democrats did not immediately start to change electoral college. You know the Republicans would have done it. Had it been the roles been well, reversed. I, I mean, look, I, um, 
I like to have the most pragmatic fights possible. And I think the biggest mistake generally was not investing in any of the states. Like 2000 was obviously a turning point. Um, but when you think about uh, the fight that Howard Dean and Rahm Emanuel had a decade ago, I think that that really laid the foundation for some of the struggles that we're seeing in the Democratic Party right now, because there was no investment in the infrastructure at the state house level. And now when you concede those state houses, when you conceded those governor's houses, uh, sorry, it's been, a, it's been a while since I had to talk. Um, when you conceded governor's mansions, when you conceded state houses um, at the time of last redistricting, you made it very difficult to win because partisan gerrymandering is corrosive. And like to even taking out the philosophical debate over the Electoral College, Democrats conceded so much ground. And I know Eric Holder has his group where he's trying to claw back at it, but and it's only been um, worsened by the idea that we have foreign meddling. So when you have domestic powers and foreign powers trying to like rig elections, it's hugely problematic. All right, fine. You know what? And I'm, I'm going to steer away from a discussion of electoral college. Okay. But you, when you said the thing about you're in a pragmatic, that's the difference right there between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans don't stop at small, pragmatic gains. They never cut short what they're going to do. Like if they want to destroy unions, they find out like they, they concoct a fundamental explanation, like a First Amendment right to destroy unions. And they push. Why? Because if you destroy unions, you destroy the institution that funds the Democratic Sure. I Party. mean, and they're not really shy about it. I mean, think about Mitch McConnell, who told the New York Times on the record that the reason he stole the Supreme Court seat from Merrick Garland was because he wanted a decision in his favor in Janus, because he believed that if public unions continued to exist, that they would continue to be um, forceful contributors to Democratic campaigns. Exactly. They, they don't and shy And it didn't matter that. what the collateral yeah. damage was. I mean, he, he talked about that he says what he means and he means what he says and it has broken our country probably more than anything and meanwhile Trump the democrats done, are always about oh let's work together i, I when i that <laughs> democratic debate i haven't no. talked to you since that democratic debate with delaney is that his name oh boy from maryland let's not waste time talking about All people right, who okay. are never going to be president yeah but he he you talk about you you talk about what i, well, I hate to I hesitate to use poisoning the dialogue uh, but he pushed the Democratic Party even that much further to the right. All right. Uh, so let's get back to our creep report update. So we all agree that Mark Halpern, uh, the book publisher, should never have turned to Mark Halpern uh, to give him the book mm -hmm. uh, contract. The Democratic consultants should never have just acted as though nothing had happened and they mm -hmm. were free. You know, they shouldn't have participated uh, with the book. And we all agree that Mark Halpern should have done some sort of public acknowledgement for what he had done and it, and just uh, hold himself responsible and accountable. Are we all in agreement on that? Yeah, but yes. even even to the, there's yes and, <laughs> even if he had, yeah. he made like some kind of a half-assed statement, even if he had, you know, prostrated himself and truly meaningfully apologized, that still wouldn't mean that he needs to walk back into the level of power that he had before. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes, no matter what you do, you need to find a new career now. Yeah, You don't need to be, a leading voice about American politics every single day on our TV. And and uh, before we leave Mark Halpern to the next uh, Democrat, Al Franken, that I'm going to raise, uh, anybody out there who buys this book, uh, 
you got to rethink things. Yes, <laughs> and I like. Yeah. I'm going to use the uh, Joanna rhetorical device of yes, and it's really like I that. think Improv. political journalists have an obligation to not interview people who participated in this book because there are other consultants they could talk to, and their whole business is based on them being able to comment on news of the day, either in political coverage in print or on t- TV. And if news organizations want to send the signal that they care about the careers of young journalists, the number one thing they could do is get their reporters to agree to not talk to these operatives. Now, think about that. Think about that recommendation you just made. And mm-hmm. what would the response be uh, to from journalists, working journalists, working editors, if you made that response to them? Well, I can tell you I've tweeted it and a lot of people favorited it, but no one retweeted. So I think that secretly there are a lot of political women in journalism who would love the idea, but it's never going to happen. By the way, speaking of your tweets, Ben, you should have seen Meredith's tweet about uh, Halpern <laughs> plus the D-trip and uh, new rule, you should share your idea. Oh, my other idea. Ben, I'm, I love I'm this full one. of ideas. I said maybe if uh, Sherry Bustos and the DCCC want a blacklist of consultants they won't work with, they should start with the people who participated in Halpern's book instead. Okay, wow. We're now we're merging a lot of <laughs> now different ben topics. Can die oh, heaven. <laughs> that's probably your favorite comment that's well, ever been made on no, the show. We, uh, <laughs> remember we had, uh, the, we, I can't remember which the consultants were, were really upset. We, we the, the whole bonus episode on that very issue of blacklisting don't get me started on that one i mean i i do not this again my beloved democratic party which is seems determined to lose every election by proving that somehow i don't know why they want to do it but the notion that you would blacklist a consultant who success who challenged a democratic incumbent is is so ridiculously self-destructive to the democrats because it's like if Whoever was the brains behind, let's say, uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez's victory. I, th- I watched the documentary, of- and I think it's just her. Okay. Well, um, I, saw, I saw the same documentary. But the point is, it's like, I, you would want to cultivate that person and use that person. Look, I think that the... Uh, so um, I might be a little bit more to the right on Joanna than Joanna on this. I, I think that it's a struggle... Look, I think Sherry Bustos has done a really bad job of managing everything at the DCCC, and I think that the most important thing is to have a staff um, and to encourage diversity in terms of campaigns, because what we know about Democratic voters right now is that we need to reach voters of color, and consultants of color are better at that, right? And a lot of the old guard consultants are white, period, full stop. But I also recognize that the DCCC is in a hard position because definitionally their job, whether we like it or not, is to protect incumbents. And there are certain times, and I would say Dan Lipinski is actually a rarity, where he is voted wrong on every single issue, right, in a, in a seat that's more of a toss-up. Like, when you have someone like AOC winning in her district that has changed demographically but is always going to be safe for Democrats, right, like that... Like, that's fine, and that's natural, and it's in due course. Like, I don't think you should blacklist consultants, but I also think that if you look at what's happened to the Republican Party over the past 10 to 20 years, because there's such financial incentive to run campaigns, they've cannibalized each other, and they've become, like, so right-wing that they're out of touch with reality of America. Do I think that that's going to happen on the left? Probably not, because it's the difference between having a fundamental belief that the government should be 
in existence versus not believing the government. But I don't think it's totally black and white because you do have districts that are not going to be as liberal as the one that yeah. AOC won. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, that, that goes without saying. All right, let's go to Al Franken. Uh, jo- Joanna and I, a creep report prop. When was Al Franken? Was that in, uh, I'm losing track of time, 2017. Who even knows anymore? Yeah. Well, uh, you were you were uh, employed with uh, the last day. <laughs> well, I still am employed. I'm, I had a different employer back yeah, then yeah, yeah. Uh, before they removed me from office. Uh, so. <laughs> no, they fired you. Oh, yeah, that same thing. No. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you were deposed. I was deposed. Uh, get them out of there now. I was too liberal for the liberal station. All right. Uh, so. Al Franken, I think it was 2017. I'm losing track of time. And I mean, time is a flat circle when it's just a million Trump tweets. Whoa. <laughs> Getting a little get poetic out, out here. Yeah, you wanted one. a poem. Let's see. Here, I got you the date. I got you the date. Go ahead. Franken announced his resignation from the Senate in December 2017 after eight women accused the former comedian talk show host of groping or trying to forcibly kiss them. All right, there were eight women uh, that uh, made the accusations. There were uh, lengthy articles. It was discussed. It was debated. Al Franken apologized, and then finally he stepped down. And now he is. Uh, he began his... What is his regret tour with an article? It was in the New Yorker, I want to say. I'm doing this off the top of my head. Uh, uh, But let's also not dismiss the fact that Jane Mayer is like maybe one of our country's best investigative journalists. An article written by Jane Mayer. So, all right. So do you have second thoughts, uh, Joanna and Meredith, about Al Franken stepping down? Joanna, do you now wish he had not stepped down? No. (laughs) Okay. What just had to ask a question. And and as much as I admire Jane Mayer, I, I was not moved by her piece in any way. I think um, nothing changed for me. We're, we were in a, a moment of cleansing. We were in a moment of catharsis where men who traded on their political position and uh, to protect themselves against these kind of accusations were no longer able to do so. Mm-hmm. It would have been a massive um, liability for the party. We've spent a lot of time talking yeah. about liabilities for the Democratic Party. Imagine if we had to go through that midterm with Al Franken sitting in his seat. Yeah. I mean, he, think whatever you will about the veracity of all the accusations against him. There's obviously a trend with him. And he might have been good natured. He might have been joking around. That's often how these things take place. Yes, he wasn't a senator at the time. But again, no one's entitled to a Senate seat. No one is entitled to a seat in the U.S. Senate. Mm -hmm. He had to make a decision about whether he wanted to put the, the future of the Democratic Party at risk by keeping his seat. And he, I think, rightly decided, okay, I don't want to take, I don't want to wear the jacket for this. And now we have people going back over and saying, well, I wish I never would have said that he should have stepped down. All right, you know what? Either take the principled stand or don't. That's my thing. Mm-hmm. If you never thought he should have resigned in the first place, own it. If you called for him to resign because it was the thing to do at the time and you never really believed it, a lot of people are showing their ass right now, and that's a problem for me. Well, so I want to go back to that particular moment because this was something, as someone who had covered the Senate for a few years, that was really interesting to me. Like, because of the way Kirsten Gillibrand went about it, like, Kirsten Gillibrand, so at, let's take a step back. Every Tuesday when Congress is in session, there are Senate caucus lunches. So all of the senators from the Democratic Party have lunch together. All of the senators from the Republican Party have lunch together. And they talk about different issues of the day, whether it's legislation or certain concerns or what they're hearing in their district. 
the way that Kirsten Gillibrand handled like the whole Al Franken affair was was frustrating to watch because like she could have raised this and made this a party decision, but she had a political calculation, which I mean is pretty clear. And so instead of like going into caucus launch and basically saying, Hey, Chuck Schumer, like I'm going to call for Al Franken's resignation. I don't think he should be member of our caucus anymore. And either as a party, we can do something in the next 24 hours, or I'm going to go out on my own and do something. She didn't do that. And so what she did was, is she put every other Democrat like in a really tough spot because people who were in cycle that year, whether it was like a Sherrod Brown or a Bob Casey, like didn't have the opportunity to join her and to join other women. So it, she created the narrative of women are the only Democrats who think the right thing and they're calling on Al Franken to resign because she is a really good communicator and constructed a political moment. So whether or not people should be entitled to change their minds or it makes them look bad if they change their minds, like I... I don't know. Obviously, they feel something differently than they did before. But like it was bad for the Democratic Party that they didn't have a chance to at least like make a decision collectively. And they probably would have come to the same decision anyway, because it wasn't even just the midterms. They were really worried about Doug Jones in Alabama. And like it was probably right at the time for Al Franken to go. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was like not handled in a way that I think created any sort of like opportunity for Democrats to stand together. And there are people who were deprived of the opportunity to actually be part of a moment, particularly if they believed it was All right. right. Now you're, uh, you're, you're criticizing something very specific. You're criticizing the way uh, Kirsten Gillibrand played that game, mm-hmm. the, way, the strategy she followed. Uh, uh, what I'm asking you is something a little more fundamental. Yeah. Do you agree with Joanna that uh, having read the Jane Mayer piece, uh, having read Al Franken's debate, having read what's in Al Franken's mind now, he re- his reconsidering, uh, were you convinced by that article and by what he had to say to uh, say, you know, I wish he had not stepped down? I think it was, he was right to step down at the time. I thought that there are ways in which he was a good senator that other senators aren't, but like that doesn't excuse the fact that he took idiotic pictures and like embarrassed himself, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's hard because at the time, particularly when Gillibrand was talking about it, she was like, well, it doesn't really matter if it's a picture or if it's like an assault, everything is the same, which I, I don't believe is true. Um, but in that context, like you don't really get the opportunity to get whatever this full hearing was that he wanted or a full ethics committee investigation, because like you have to make a political calculation. The Democrats were ultimately pushed to that political calculation. And Joanna's right. Like no one is entitled to be a Senator. And there was a lot of stuff that he did or didn't do. Like the thing that sort of struck me was before all of this went down, I had read the giant of the Senate and he talked a lot about his 2008 campaign and how he was being so careful to like not demonstrate the kinds of behaviors that he like had as a comedian because he knew like the whole trove of footage of him as a comedian could be held against him. And so that was sort of incongruent with the idea that he was on this USO tour and like took that picture. Like, I don't know why he posed for that picture. Well, I I don't want to, I think you're right. I also don't want to diminish what he did because yes, he took one really inappropriate picture, but there's also a bunch of other women who were like, he grabbed my ass. Like he groped me. 
he did a bunch of other stuff besides that one incident. And I think it often just gets like drilled down to the most famous thing, which is that inappropriate photograph. But this is a guy who repeatedly over the course of his life, um, he was, you know, what we might call a habitual line stepper. He, he would try to push the envelope and sometimes he would push it in a way that was demeaning or actively, you know, inappropriate sexually towards women. And so I understand the hand-wringing over Al Franken. I think he was a good senator in many respects. He was a, a progressive champion. I always had a lot of respect for him. But when we have things like Senator Harry Reid coming forward and saying, or former Senator Harry Reid coming forward and saying, I wish he would run again. Okay, well then I have to ask against who? Because right now we have two women senators in the state of Minnesota. So who exactly, Democratic senators, so who exactly would you like him to run against and why? And why don't we have that conversation when we start to raise up the idea of him making his comeback? Again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, where everybody's now feeling safe coming out of the shadows and talking about, well, is it time for me to make my comeback? Is it time for me to like pay some lip service to some sort of an apology statement? All the while, you know, finding ways to undermine and use research to diminish the stories of the women who have come forward um, with one hand and then with the other, you know, voicing how sorry we are and how we're ready to come back out of the doghouse. I think we're seeing that happen again and again. I think we're seeing it with Franken. I think we're seeing it with uh, Halperin. And I think we're seeing it elsewhere. And, and I just think that's the part of this sort of cycle that we're in that's concerning to me. Yeah, it was just the other thing that was really weird, too, about all of the Franken stuff is that he had really prominent like female staff who worked for him and really respected him. And so it was just like very like everything about all of the news that was coming out of the time was really just like discordant, like with Mark Halpern, right? Everyone knew he was always a creep and everyone knew like there were always people and there were certain senators even that you knew were just notorious for being creeps. And that was never really the culture of his office. And so, you know, you think about all these political events, if you're a male politician, like in the photo line, like I think if I were consulting a male politician at this point, I'd be like, you should just stand with your hands behind your backs. Actually, this is something that happened. We took a picture with Bill Walton a few months ago, and he always poses for pictures with people by holding his hands behind his backs. So you can't like he can't touch anyone in a place where he's like not supposed to touch someone. Like I think if I were consulting any male politician, it would be like you should just stand there and not try to like put your arm around a person. Or do the Keanu Reeves thing. There's have you seen the photos of Keanu Reeves where mm -hmm. he's literally like you can see his hand and it's not touching anyone. It's like this. Oh. It's, because it's because like that just was like the bulk of the, the Franken stuff, right? Yeah. It was like, oh, he took a picture with me and he like kind of grazed my butt. Yeah, or he grabbed my butt. Yeah. Right? Uh by the way, I a tangent within a tangent within a mm -hmm. tangent. Uh, why were you hanging out with Bill Walton? <laughs> so we have a family tradition because uh. we are very sad sports fans um, that every year that the University of Illinois plays in the Maui Invitational, that is where we do Thanksgiving. So every six years we go to, well, we did see them win one time uh, in 2012 with Brandon Paul, a forgotten team other than the fact that they won the Maui Invitational. So uh, last fall, Illinois was back in the field. They were the most notable team in the field, like right above Zion Williamson and Duke. Uh, but you are there and it's a high school sized gym and Bill Walton was there. I hope that everyone in this room watched on Friday when Bill Walton and Benetti called a baseball game together. They were the crew together that was calling basketball. Uh, and so we like wanted to get a picture with Walton. So okay. we did. I love 
Bill Walton. Yeah, I cannot say that. I, I you? Love, yeah, love Bill. Ben? I am. We're going to do a basketball podcast. Okay. I'm showing this. I'm here you for right it. now, and you will be a regular. You, the, your little Bill Walton thing there proved it. Uh, also, much more natural at calling a baseball game than a basketball game because in a baseball game you have plenty of time to go no, on tangents. I love Bill Walton, and I love. I was out of town, so I, I did not hear that game, but I've seen. Um, People have been sending me clips, Ben, because everybody knows I love it's Bill so Walton. Good. When it was I was so a kid, good. I love Bill Walton. Anyway, all right. Let's, You're let's. literally talking to a girl who, like, I one day got, like, a message in the middle of the day from my husband who's like, do you want to go out to Naperville? And I said, why? And he said, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is going to a book talk. So we audibled that night and met Kareem. So, oh, yeah. Like, this is sort of what we do. So uh, when you do the Anderson's, basketball episode, yeah, I'm, I'm here. No, we, we, we will be doing a basketball podcast, right, D? Yep. He's nodding his head. Uh, all right. Uh, so we've pretty much. I think you could have gotten him to agree to any show just there, and you really blew your opportunity with basketball. You could have chosen something. You could have chosen anything. Well, basketball is sort of the thing I would choose. I know. Uh, all right. Uh, the Bulls season is right around the corner. I have six weeks to go. All right. So let's do, let's close with one last uh, creep. All right. The biggest creep of them all. Let's close with Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, this is a story that before I went on vacation, we were talking a lot about on the show and just many different, there's just so many different levels of Jeffrey Epstein. I think Joanna was the one who broke the news to me. Joanna's <laughs> always breaking news to me. I was breaking creep news about sexual predators to Ben. I was about to leave town on my vacation, I think, and I got a text from Joanna that uh, Jeffrey Epstein had committed suicide uh, in his jail cell in uh, New York City. So just like general thoughts, uh, Joanna, about the significance of Jeffrey Epstein and his case in all these issues that we're talking about in a culture of today, just, just like your general thoughts about it. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different things we could focus on. We could focus on the fact that this billionaire um, literally owned an island known as Pedophile Island. We could focus on the fact that he was close personal friends with both President Trump and former President Clinton and so many others, we could focus on the conspiracy theories around his death. To me, the thing I'm thinking about today uh, is all the glaring and insane ways in which um, his incarceration and an eventual death um, can tell us something about the criminal justice system at large and how he was treated in a way that no one else in the criminal justice system is treated unless they're billionaires. This is a man who was able to break a deal to leave jail six days a week to quote unquote go to work mm -hmm. for a year for i don't know a year i can't remember how this long this was in florida this mm -hmm. was back in florida mm -hmm. uh i just was reading this report from julie brown at the miami herald who's been like oh my god the mm. the the hero of this story yes, in many ways has. um that a decade ago during a stint in palm beach county jail jeffrey epstein already a convicted sex offender at the time was able to buy at the jail's like commissary two pairs of small women's panties size five. The, I don't even know, I have so many questions. But the, just the many ways in which, uh, you know, the fact that he was somehow allowed and able to kill himself um, when that's what he, or, you know, some people don't believe it. I, I think he killed himself. That's what the autopsy are, are, shows. Yeah, are we all in agreement that he killed himself? Let's just start there. Are we all in agreement on that? I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there. I think it's likely that he was suicidal and that these 
guards well, let it, him did do it, it. Didn't it come out today that he had just re-signed a new will like two days yeah. before? Yes. Look, here's here's what I'll say about it, and I don't have like anything deep or profound to say on this particular issue, but I will say this. There was a New York Times story, I think it was probably late last week, or early this week where they were talking to Attorney General Bill Barr and he's like, you know, ultimately we'll like hold the person responsible for this accountable and he's the person who runs the whole federal system. So like in terms of the like the, uh, on the long list of reasons why the current Attorney General is a joke, this is just another just check on that particular box. (laughs) And it's extremely frustrating that we have a Department of Justice right now that is so massively dysfunctional. There are the deep systemic issues with incarceration in this country, and I know Joanna touched on them, but like, I'll just take this opportunity to like just know, recognize, and marinate in the fact that Bill Barr's a joke. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. I think we we'll all three agree on that one. But going yeah. back to the rift that you're on, Joanna, uh, I cut you off. Well, let me just read this. Okay. Yeah. On Friday, the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office, which runs the jail and stockade, handed out the records of his stay, during which he was allowed to leave the stockade in a chauffeur-driven car and deposited at a West Palm Beach office building for a 12-hour-a-day, six-day-a-week respite from incarceration. I mean, that's just not a thing. That's Why? Now, I have to ask you this, because a lot of powerful people have been incarcerated. I, Rod Blagojevich, as we speak, the former governor of Illinois... Yeah, he ain't a billionaire. Yeah, he's... He's yeah, barely a thousandaire at this yeah, point, I think. I, I, if he, but if his that. hair is just still so magical. <laughs> I've had a lot how of conversations does, how about does it. How does he do it? I don't Apparently know. Rod's hair. looking great in prison. A lot of people want to talk about his physical appearance. I mean, <laughs> mostly it's always just been the hair. I feel like consistently, like the first pictures like of him in prison like eight years ago or whatever, he was his hair was all white, yeah. which means he was really dying it a lot, I feel like, when he was a free man. I'm, I'm starting to... Like I really have been advocating that he be released from prison. I think he's been in prison for too long, but he does look so great. I'm saying, no wonder maybe things aren't so bad. Um, all right. Uh, so Jeffrey Epstein. So why has he got away with it for so long? Just because we don't value women. Like this is the through thread for this whole episode is that we do not value women. It does not matter if they were young or they are old. Like we have created a society in every facet that just does not value women. And so the privilege of someone like Jeffrey Epstein and all of his friends, like that trumped, see what I did there? Very good. The rights and liberties of women at almost every turn. And I've been thinking about this a lot, whether it's with Halperin or things that have been happening in my life personally. And it is, it's frustrating to see and like when I think about actual perspective, I mean, the Bill Barr thing was like a, a, aligned for this particular crowd and audience. But I do think that overall, when we think about how we talk about women in this country, when we think about how we talk about things that are important to women in this country, like women's health, we've put this weird puritanical and conservative lens over women everywhere. And the consequence is that young women can get preyed upon by people who have resources or young women can feel like their careers are taken from them because they are preyed upon by people who have influence and power in their chosen career paths. And 
it affects women in every decision they make, whether it's what they're doing with their jobs or what they get to do with their body. And we're making some progress, but it is slow and it is steady. And because of the culture that we've sort of built, particularly when it comes to you know, sex or reproductive health. Women don't feel comfortable talking about that in any capacity and that culture of silence only enables it. And we have to talk more about women and their power and their agency because if we don't, then the continued conversation will be all of the sensational stuff about a billionaire and his friend and did he commit suicide? Did he not commit suicide? Like there, we have huge systemic problems in this country and until we sort of break from the, you know, the shadows or the black box that we put women in to talk about all of these issues and to confront them, they will continue to persist. Mm-hmm. Well, I, st- I, I, uh, I still think it's important whether he committed suicide or didn't commit suicide. If the notion that a, that he was murdered to silence him is a pretty disturbing notion in and of itself beyond anything we're saying i personally yeah. believe he committed suicide uh, and i ben, you're not supposed to say committed suicide anymore oh really mm-hmm. just say he killed himself apparently that is a thing now I, so okay it's better uh, to I, just say I, I did not know that uh so i i believe he killed himself uh and um the why the guards weren't paying attention when they should have been paying attention is a whole other story that probably has. Well, okay. So if we're going to talk about this, then, then what we should talk about and how we should talk about it is that these women who are brave enough to come forward will never get the opportunity at the justice they were seeking because there was some conversation. Oh, well maybe they're in it for money. When you hear these women talk about their experience, what they wanted was that moment of closure and justice. And he took that away from them. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the question of whether he actually killed himself or was killed or was allowed to kill himself, we probably will never know mm-hmm. the truth. And I, it's definitely like fertile ground for conspiracy theory um, I'll be going around for stuff. A but I think that it, what it gets to the core of is that everyone looks at the situation and understands this is a person who had an enormous amount of power and leverage. And it's just because of the sheer amount of money that he had and controlled. Also, like no one knows how he made his money, which is actually the mystery. Oh, to well, me. that's another thing. Um, <laughs> that's another thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, I want to. I also want to go back to what Meredith said before about yes, why is this a thing? Because we don't value women in our society. That's true. That also got me to thinking, however, about um, how this case might have been handled differently if they were young boys who were being brought in to give him massages and you know, be sexually trafficked um, and how this case might have been handled differently. And I wonder if he still would have been protected because we value money and capital above everything else and above the lives of our children, whether women or men or, you know, any other gender identity. So I don't know, that's sort of like a, a very far aside, but I think one thing I've learned in my past two years of working with Um, victims and survivors is that as stigmatized as women are when they come forward about this kind of thing, there's so many stories that we never hear about the boys and the men who can't come forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I, I just think that like, it's something that we don't talk about enough um, that so many of these people who are sexual predators are also sexual predators towards male victims Mm -hmm. that can't get discussed yet. We're not at that point. 
as a society. Well, or it takes time. Like when you were talking, I was thinking about the Catholic Church, right? That is an entity with a lot of money and a lot of influence. And it took a very long time for some of those stories of what was happening to young boys to come forward. Yeah, and that stuff I think is not, I don't think that's been solved in the Catholic Church. No, it's not not like, you know, we're now, what, 20 years later, that story first broke on Mm 9-11 about the Catholic Church. Um, I don't think the Catholic Church is healed. Oh no, I wasn't. I wasn't suggesting that they were. I'm no, just no, saying that like that was an an analog to like what yeah. you, the dynamic that you were describing. Right. All right. Very good. We I think uh, may have shattered the last uh, Joanna Klonsky record of uh, talking on a podcast. We probably should uh, uh, we'll close it, it down. down. Let's uh, eliminate down, some I of think. this. Yeah. No. 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 This goes, baby. This is it. We we don't do any editing. Uh, it 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 goes as is. Uh, anything before I let you go? Anything you want to promote or tell people about uh, before I let you uh, get out the door? Anything? Yeah. We got a girl talk episode on. Uh, I don't know what the date is, August 27th, I want to say. This month we're dealing with gun violence. We've got Pam Bosley from Purpose Over Pain and Tamar Manasa from Mask. I might have said her name wrong. Mothers Against, I don't know what her, a senseless killing, I, I think. Um, two women who have been working in Chicago communities against gun violence for many years. Uh, so the hideout, it'll be August 27th, 630. It's 10 bucks at the door. Very good. You want to say? I'll just promote the girl talk because I believe that yeah. we should confront gun violence in this country. It's the number one issue. We should believe that every parent in this country has the right to send their kids out in the morning and have them come home at night. So Very let's good. keep this conversation going. The girl talk uh, at the hideout, 1354 West Wabansia, Tuesday, August 27th. Erica Wozniak will still be on the show, right? Correct. Of course. And uh, the great Jen Sabella, uh, the co-hosts of that show. Uh, Joanna Klonsky was is sort of the brains behind the show that they don't talk about too much, but she plays. <laughs> That's a how Joanna role. likes it in all of her work. I, I think know, she's the brains behind the, brains. the scenes. I'm the pro- I'm one of the producers with one Eric and Jen. Yes. Very proud of it. Uh, okay, so it's not correct. I'm to not call a her secret. The brains yeah. behind the show. Uh, anyway, thank you very much, Joanna and Meredith, for coming here, and uh, we'll bring you back. So this is Ben Jarofsky's the end. Another Ben Jarofsky bonus show. Take care, everybody.